Hello and welcome back to the Language Connection podcast, a podcast about ideas relevant to our student community here in Bolivia as well as the wider world. I'm Luke Malkin, and for this episode of the podcast, I brought in a friend from university, Ed Lewis Smith, who I always enjoy talking to because he has worked in some of the most interesting jobs I've heard of. Ed is a civil servant, which means he works for the British government, but not as a politician. We talk about a few of the jobs he has worked on, including writing letters for the Queen, before moving on to a subject that may just change the world in a few years' time, fusion energy. Our conversation spilled way over what I had expected, so I edited this into two parts. In this first part today, we talk about life in the civil service and then what fusion power actually is. What's the science behind it? Is it safe? Why do we need it? In part two, we talk more generally about the climate emergency and about how Bolivia has many choices to make about its future, its resources, and how green it should be. I found this conversation very enlightening and I hope you do too. Let's get into it. Hello, Ed. Hi, Luke. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing very I'm live well. in foggy London. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, this is Santa Cruz. Um, it's a little bit foggy today, uh, as the day we're recording this. Tell us where you are right now. I am uh, walking past the River Thames in Battersea Park, which is in South West London. And you are a born and bred Londoner. That is correct, yes. I have lived in South West London all of my life, far three years in York with your good child. Yeah, and that's how we know each other. We met when we went to university together uh, in York. And after yeah, yeah. spending three years in York, you moved back to London. And, and what, tell us about some of the interesting jobs that you've had since then, because I've really enjoyed listening to your career progression over, over the years. So um, after I graduated, I did various voluntary and training type things, uh, as is quite common in the UK uh, and was lucky enough to start working the civil service so that's working for the government uh, as, a, as, a, as an official on policy so you advise uh, ministers and politicians uh, on options and ideas on what they want to do um, and I started doing the scanning you know the filing uh, in the department for education uh, and now work in the department for business and energy in, uh, on science things on, on research into clean energy uh, and, and other research and development issues like that. And I think my favorite job that you did, I think the most, I like what you're doing at the moment, but let's not skip over the fact that you once okay. replied to letters written to the Queen. Uh, yes. yes, that's true. So uh, early on in my career, actually, in the Department of Education, I was responsible for replying to any letter written by a child to the Queen or to the Prime Minister, but sometimes it was the Queen, about their school and they would go on to my desk. And so I would draft replies that would then go out um, from the minister. And were they generally positive or negative? It's kind of half and half, actually. Um, the, and often the complaints were quite silly. They'd be like, I don't like teacher so-and-so. And actually, <laughs> I, I say that, they often weren't like that because uh, usually a child that had the, the kind of initiative to write to the government had something that the child wanted to say. So it was often actually a bit more than that. So, more, so my favourite one was when an eight-year-old wrote to, um, I think it was the Prime Minister, saying, Dear Prime Minister, um, I think time travel is really interesting and, and everyone should study it at school. And then, it, then the second part of the letter said, also, why do police use tasers? Um, which is a totally oh. different subject. <laughs> and I was able to answer the first one because that was about what children should be taught in school. So I gave 
a child-friendly answer on why the government uh, mandates certain things to be taught in schools. But then I gave a rather interesting answer on, oh, time travel is really interesting. And then there's some analogy. Uh, but then I had to ask the Home Office, that's a department in the UK responsible for police and stuff like that, uh, for information about why police do use tasers. So what training did you get on the kind of responses? And did you have to edit your language to sound ridiculously formal because you're writing on behalf of Queen Elizabeth II? <laughs> um, no, it, I mean, the, the, the language that, that, we, that we used in, in these letters, the... Uh, the only moderation you had applied will with an eight-year-old understand it. It doesn't need to be so formal that it's it sort of it it, it it reads as distant and cold and aloof. It has to be friendly and engaging. You're going to use a certain vocabulary and uh, and write it a certain length for the for the, for the children. Otherwise, it's a, it is actually fairly kind of standard, and that's an essential part of any uh, civil servant's job is the ability to write clearly and concisely about fairly dry things often in a way that isn't dry and boring. Right. Did you get regular correspondence from some kids who were so happy to have received a reply from you that was <laughs> engaging that they thought, oh, you know, I've got a pen pal here. The Queen's going to keep writing to me. So actually the only time, well, certainly I, I would never sign it. It was always the, the, the minister liked to, um, liked to write the ones to kids. And the only time we ever got a, like a follow-up bit of correspondence from children was when their teacher actually wrote in saying thank you so much for your reply minister the children were so um grateful and impressed that you know the government took time to listen to their their ideas that they put it on the wall in their classroom as a reminder that you know that that, that you can engage with with authority and hopefully uh, have a proper proper response that says a lot even with that just on the wall doesn't it, it it's yeah. you have you have been listened to and replied to means a lot to these kids yeah exactly Absolutely. So um, moving on from uh, letter writing, is, is this a regular course that people take in, in civil servants is moving from a variety of departments to see kind of a, a holistic picture of how the country works? It is quite common. The rationale behind me doing that. Uh, well, firstly, there wasn't much rationale. I just got bored of one job and saw and I had a look to see what was out there that what sounded interesting or not. Um, but it certainly is quite common that, that civil service are often generalists. That means they're not an expert in one particular thing. And a lot of graduates, so a lot of the civil servants who went on the graduate scheme, that's actually part of the training. You are moved around to gain um, a feeling for different areas and issues. And after then, a bit later on in your career, you kind of specialise a bit. And, and that's sort of what happened to me, but not, not, not by accident rather than by design. I've, I've just ended up in this science world, which actually I find very, very interesting. Is it fair to say that the main skill that you're using on a day-to-day -day basis in all of these departments is the ability to communicate? Yes, I think that probably is the most important skill um, because you're communicating about such a diverse range of issues, such a diverse range of people. So by that, I mean, you'll be talking, uh, either talking or writing to the ministers or senior officials you know, one part of the day about ideas for new policies to implement. You'll be drafting letters to go out to the public about existing things that they're complaining about. You'll be working with your team uh, to communicate and hopefully, uh, you know, convey a sense of enthusiasm and motivation to all that. That's very important communication, obviously. And these are all about totally different things. So if you have a, in an area such as mine, that will range from, you know, a planning issue because someone wants to build a building on a certain bit of land that's too big or whatever, all the way up to quite a complicated set of numbers that are the costs for a big new program. And all of that 
uh, and you've got to communicate to other people. So yes. And as you said at the beginning, you don't uh, have to belong to a, uh, a specific political party. You keep your job depending on, it doesn't matter who's in 10 Downing Street. That's correct. In fact, you, you are allowed to belong to the party, but that is in no way allowed to influence or determine the way you uh, act in your role. Uh, you have to be neutral and impartial, perhaps. See, that is different to Bolivia because your allegiance to the party that you belong to can often be whether you have the job or not. It makes it makes quite a big difference. What ministers uh, have always said that they uh, think is good about the British civil service is the way that it is neutral and impartial. And actually, that means that we can give them neutral and impartial advice, whereas those who are dependent on their relationship with those ministers are going to skew the advice to uh, make sure that it's not going to displease them it's better that it's going to keep that relationship positive otherwise they might lose their job whereas we can say we can we can deliver bad news or or say no or say this is a bad idea uh, and our job will be safe you and i guess you also provide long-term stability for if a government yes, is going to exactly. change frequently i know the uk government hasn't changed in years but they have different leaders different ideas uh, even though it's been the same party for a while it has um, although a huge change in 2016 with brexit that but we, we absolutely started uh, started from scratch on many things at that point right yeah yes but they're coming but people coming in and will find but yeah there's a working machine uh, that i absolutely. guess absolutely they steer a little bit but you're drive you're the engine we're the engine we're certainly not driving they drive we 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 we're the engine uh, exactly but they're on the on the bridge on the deck it's, we can say this is a bad idea but they can always say i don't care right do it. <laughs> right is that difficult sometimes um to oh yeah very difficult to to be kind of the engine in a car that's driving in a different way to how you would want as a individual or as a member of a, of a different political party so this is if you don't if you can't handle that then you should be a civil servant and I occasionally find it or or as I think I do struggle with that sometimes but not in the areas in which I work um, there'll be certain issues uh, that are uh, should we say that get very political mm -hmm. and, that, uh, and that politicians take a real interest in and have a very strong view on which might not which might really oppose with your own that might be difficult I think I would find that difficult um, but then if you can't handle that then you're not you're not a very good civil servant you should be in the job um, but the point is that you're always providing advice on not what you would do, but purely on, on the facts and the implications and the costs. Uh, and your recommendation is in account, takes account of all those issues, but not your own view. I guess it's not just a rule for civil servants, but a rule for life that you can't always get what you want. <laughs> yeah, yes. But if you try sometimes... You just might find... Anyway, next question. <laughs> that you get what you need. So um, you're in business and energy is the department that you're the, yeah. working in now for, I think, a couple of years. Yeah, two and a half years. Tell us about um, business and energy, what you're doing in that department right now. So I, in that department, um, look after. So that means I am responsible for the policy area, which, again, means anything that ministers might want to do or spend money on or, or, or support on research into fusion energy. Uh, so fusion energy is basically the process that happens in the sun. It keeps the sun going and therefore keeps the world going. We're replicating the process of fusion energy on the earth. So scientists have been researching for decades around the world on how to do that, because if we can do it, can harness fusion energy, it could play a hugely important and helpful role in, in, in decarbonizing the planet, uh, generating clean energy without CO2 emissions. It's basically would have the same 
environment, environmental impact as nuclear power, but without any of the risk. So I think everyone's familiar with the idea of fossil fuels are going to run out at some point. It's not a sustainable, it's been very useful for us in the 20th century and, and now in the 21st, but it's not going to survive. And, and I think a lot of people are looking towards green energy as, yes, it's green, but fusion isn't part of that conversation. Why is that? That's true because it's not here yet it doesn't work yet we can't make it work yet a wind turbine to generate wind power solar panel to harness the light energy from the sun existing technologies we know they work they are working and they will do they're gonna they will help um to tackle climate change fusion is a long-term thing and i think this is this is also a, a challenge for government because when something is and it still is decades away why should the government care so the uk government cares not just because it would be a hugely beneficial thing for the planet, but because the UK happens to be really good at fusion energy. Um, we've hosted the world's most powerful fusion reactor in the UK since the 80s. Uh, so we, we kind of know how it, how it works and what, what, needs to be, what needs to be researched and developed to make it commercially viable. Uh, and that's, that's at the heart of UK government research programs. It's not just making it work, but it's making it work for the UK to provide an economic return on our investment. So at the moment, a fusion, um, if I remember you saying once, it does work, but it creates less energy than you need to switch the machine on in the first place at the moment. That's correct. The challenge right now is, so, so JET, the, the, that, that fusion reactor I mentioned in the UK, uh, it does work. It produces fusion energy, but it took more power. Uh, more power went into the machine than came out. So the next step to developing fusion is getting more power out than the power that you put in. Um, there's a big project in France, a huge international program called ITER, which aims to do that. And, and, we, and then everyone expects that it will do that, but it's hugely expensive because it's the first of a kind, sort of huge, it's I think the biggest science project in the world. And, and, it, and you can't prove the viability uh, of an energy source if it costs billions and billions and billions. It would just be cheaper to cover the whole world with wind turbines and solar panels. Can you talk us through the science a little bit to help us visualize it? Sure. When I say fusion, there are different ways to achieve fusion, but at the very heart, there's a scientific process whereby hydrogen atoms are fused together to become a different type of atom, helium. And the, that fusing of those two atoms produces a lot of energy when, it, when things join together. There's a, then a neutron comes out, and the harnessing of both that neutron and the new helium atom there's a lot of energy around that. So it's the opposite to nuclear fission, which is in power station, nuclear power station at the moment, where you get a very, very unstable element, uranium or plutonium, and you destabilize it further, and then you harness all the degradation and neutrons and, and, and atomic matter that comes out from that degrading material. Fusion is the opposite. You get two stable things, and you try and smash them together. So you can imagine that's a lot harder. The sun can do it because the sun is massive, and it has a lot of gravity. For us to be able to do that on Earth, uh, we need to make it even hotter than the sun, even denser than the sun, and then you've got to control it and harness it. How hot is the sun? The sun, I think, is 50 million centigrade in the middle of it, and JET, that's that fusion reactor in the UK, is 150 when it's turned on and operating at full power. How do we make something so, that hot? That's, so something hotter than the sun exists in the UK right now? So, if, yeah, the, question, the answer to the question, where is the hottest place in the solar system, it's not always the sun. Sometimes it's Oxfordshire. <laughs> Just outside London. Yeah, yeah. In the, right in the middle of the UK, in a little field. I should explain, yeah, how, how are you getting a, replicating a sun on the planet? Imagine a ring donut, but that's made out of magnets. Inside that magnetic donut, 
to what's called a plasma. So that's not a solid, not a liquid, not a gas, the next one up. Super, super thin material, um, a plasma made up of hydrogen atoms. And you get it up to that temperature through lots of different funky ways of heating, you know, microwaves, uh, inserting what I think are called neutral beams. So these are other sort of uh, particles, all to kind of get this plasma really hot. And then you've got to control it by manipulating these magnets to keep it in its shape. And as the uh, elements crash into each other and fuse and spew out neutrons and helium atoms, that magnetic chamber needs to capture them. And in capturing them, those bits that are capturing them will get really hot. And then all you need to do is run water or gas through those hot bits. And then you can spin a turbine and get energy. Interesting. So the, so the challenge is, is that, where the, is that where the money comes into it? The heating to get to the... Uh, actually, no. The heating's... So actually, in, really, really interestingly, it's not making it really hot that's difficult. It's making... It's then, it's then not melting the thing. So actually, we've already proven with this donut shape that you can, that you can do this. And this and JET, this reactor in, in Oxfordshire, has shown that it works. But JET has not been able to do it so efficiently to create energy. So one way that the UK is, is, is researching is to change the shape. So rather than have a donut shape, you have more like an apple shape. So it's sort of tighter. And actually, that uses the, magnetics, the, the magnets much more efficiently. So you need to spend a lot less money on the magnets and all the material and all the engineering around that, which includes cooling the magnets because the magnets get really hot and if they get really hot, they'll break or they won't work. So you can use the magnets more efficiently, but if you squeeze it, so it's really much smaller, it's even hotter. And you've got to be able to control that really, really hot material. So actually something the UK is doing, and you can Google it because it was turned on only two weeks ago. There's a Mm -hmm. new reactor in Oxfordshire called MAST-U, that is a very, very boring name, and it stands for Mega Amp Spherical Tokamak Upgrade. That's not a catchy name, we're sorry. Um, but it was turned on two weeks ago, first plasma, and that aims to show a brand new way of harnessing the heat and exhausting it, so controlling it, so the thing won't melt. So at the moment, if you have that shape of tokamak, that's what the name of the magnetic chamber for fusion is, it's Russian, you mm-hmm. have that shape, at the moment, it's likely the thing's going to melt or break or not work. You have this new thing, which is called, and this is, is a file name, a Super X Diverter. <laughs> yeah, it's called a Super X Diverter. Then you can reduce the heat in, the, in that uh, tokamak. Incredible. So how much, how much attention is really being put into this right now? You say it's still decades away. Would that reduce, well, in, in theory, right? if we were to dedicate more time and more energy to this? Very good question. Often, as I'm sure you can imagine, politicians say, this is too slow. Why can't it be quicker? Science is slow. It takes a long time to do this stuff. And when you're spending a lot of money, you don't want to make mistakes. So the, the US has a spherical tokamak, um, and they spent a lot of money on it, and it broke because it's, it's this complicated stuff. But we don't, and, and, and no one wants to break their expensive machines. And because they're so unique, you know, it, it, it's not worth taking the risk. Now, on that point of risk, this is where the climate crisis means that maybe we should take more risks. But if you're going to take more risks, it's going to cost a lot more money because things aren't going to break or things aren't going to work. And if that's okay, because you know what, there is a climate emergency, then fine. In the 60s, when, when America sent a man to the moon did that in 10 years and less at the peak of the Apollo program. It was costing 4% of GDP. 
of America. That is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could argue that that was not a good use of money. I mean, imagine if 4% of American GDP had been spent on clean water in, in, in developing countries. You know, that would have been far more beneficial. But America set itself that target and they did it. And so if, if, if the world would have set that kind of challenging target on fusion, then maybe it could be achieved, but it would cost an absolute bomb. Uh, bomb is a poor choice of word because um, <laughs> you can build an atomic bomb. Uh, and in fact, the, the most powerful bombs that we have these days, uh, which are nuclear bombs, are strengthened with fusion, but an uncontrolled fusion process. And, that, and, you know, and atomic bombs were developed very quickly because there was a war on. So it's this, these kind of challenges for government. Uh, but it's not just about, not just about money. It's about that risk appetite being prepared to see things fail. It's a bit being prepared to take risks. And, and government generally isn't very happy about that because it's taxpayers' money at the end of the day. So what percentage of GDP goes on bombs? What goes on the military? Oh, that's a very good question. On the military, it's less than 2% in the UK. Talking of the nuclear then, because I think fusion is always going to have, even though we've explained that fission is breaking the atom and fusion is throwing it together, um, yeah. the idea that nuclear energy is still seen as dangerous because it is dangerous, is difficult to, to look after compared to other alternatives that we've got. How much of a challenge does safety bring to fusion? And will Very it get question. caught in with this, with Homer Simpson nuclear meltdown codes? So there is never going to be a meltdown from fusion. Um, the challenges of making it happen illustrate that. It's so hard to make happen that if something breaks, if a component fails, the thing will turn off. It just will stop. Um, so there could never be a nuclear explosion like in Chernobyl. There could never be a, a meltdown of a reactor going into the groundwater. Nothing like that will ever happen. The hazards from fusion are that the, the, you're flying atoms and, and, and neutrons around in this thing. So at the end of its life, after several decades, the insides of it, it's not a nice place to be. You've got to send robots in to keep it clean and well-maintained. And there will be components, therefore, that are slightly irradiated. Nothing, nothing on the scale of a nuclear reactor currently. These things will, they don't have to be stored hundreds of miles underground or anything like that. So, you know, it's nuclear, but it's nothing like that. Um, similarly, the only other hazard is that the tritium. So tritium is, a, is an isotope of hydrogen. It is radioactive but it's got a half-life of 12 years. So if ever there were to be an escape of tritium, probably in the form of, of uh, water vapor, which has got tritium in it, again, you don't want to breathe it in. It's really not good for you, but it will last in the atmosphere for 12 years, and then it'll be gone. Whereas the stuff that came out of Chernobyl is going to be in that area for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Nuclear reactors as they are now, um, particularly in places where they've got a credible regulatory framework are not dangerous. The, the hazards involved are managed by the designs, by the way they're run. So what I always get told by my nuclear colleagues is that it's not about the risk, it's about the hazard. And although there's a hugely high hazard at the heart of a nuclear power, power station, these days there should be never any risk in the way they're run. Of course, you know, it's not necessarily as simple as that. On fusion though, the hazard is low and the risk is therefore low. Okay, so we'll call it there for part one because there is a lot of scientific vocabulary to process there and it's very understandable if you need a break before we go on to the more analytical second part coming up next week where we talk more generally about the world and how it's reacting to climate change as well as talking about what Bolivia should do with its lithium. 
Language Connection Bolivia is an English language institute based out of Santa Cruz, Bolivia. If you're interested in English classes to raise you or your child's level, then get in touch. The best way is through WhatsApp on 78496717, or you can find us on Facebook, Language Connection Bolivia, or Language Connection on Instagram. Our website is languageconnection.com.bo for more about us and what we do. My thanks to Ed for his insight. This is episode 7 of the Language Connection podcast. Check out part 2 when it's available, as well as the other episodes available where we talk to people from all over the world. I'm Luke Malkin. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.